VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, October 9th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook, and on Patreon. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Our interview for today was recorded a short while ago when Kishore was anticipating his current busy schedule. He's on hiatus this week as he is deep in prep for the annual Bay Area Science Festival of which he is the director. We are all really excited for the festival to begin in a couple of weeks and there will be some events that Inquiring Minds will be at as well as some events that I'm doing myself. Um, So if you're in the Bay Area, check out the schedule. Um, One in particular is on November 3rd. I'll be at the San Jose Museum of Technology talking about music and the brain. And I'll also be doing a project for Frontiers on November the 6th at the Chabot Space and Science Center in Oakland, where we're going to be turning the tables. So scientists are going to be presenting their work and kids are going to be reviewing it. Should be a lot of fun. But there are tons of other events that the Bay Area Science Festival presents. So we're really looking forward to that. But It's a particularly appropriate time to air this interview because it touches upon a topic that has been making headlines recently, and that is, how close are we to simulating the human brain? This is the week in which the Nobel Prizes in science were announced, and so everybody's got big science on their minds. And a few weeks ago, an article by Stephen Thiel in Scientific American outlined the disastrous state of one of the major big science projects currently ongoing in Europe. It's the $1.3 billion human brain project. It was led by Henry Markham, who boldly claimed that within 10 years, he'd be able to simulate a human brain using a supercomputer. It turns out that Markham himself was a little bit disappointed in the way that neuroscience was going. And especially when his son was diagnosed with autism, he felt that he really wanted to see what it would be like to be inside his son's brain. And the way to do that, of course, was to simulate it. But the project has been disappointing, to say the least. And it's currently in the process of a massive reorganization, including changes of leadership. At the same time, a couple years ago, the U.S. had a similar initiative that was launched. And although the actual amount of money devoted to the project pales in comparison to the European project, the U.S.'s brain initiative was unveiled by President Obama a couple years ago, and everyone was really excited about what it might bring. But this time, the National Institutes of Mental Health proceeded with caution. And seeing what was happening in Europe, they held a series of public workshops with 15 different neuroscientists leading the way to develop initiatives and a general direction. As Stefan calls it in the Scientific American article, it's distributed innovation under a central funding umbrella. So the question is, is that really a better way of understanding the brain? To help us answer that question, Kishore talked to Assistant Professor of Computational Cognitive Science and Neuroscience at the University of California, San Diego, Bradley Wojtek. They had a really interesting conversation, and they also touched upon Brad's work, which is on oscillations, so how neurons don't just send signals to each other that you know only respond when one neuron sends it to another, but rather that there is a rhythmicity in the way that neurons communicate. And the truth is, is that we don't understand what that kind of oscillatory signal really might mean ultimately in the brain. We have some ideas, and Brad's work is pioneering the understanding of what those oscillations might mean for 
for cognition. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, joining me at the top of the show is Rebecca Watson. She's the founder of Skeptic.org, a network of blogs about science and critical thinking. Rebecca, what's on your mind this week? Oh, man. Hi. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to be back. Uh, You know, I'm always ready to be here when Kishore has better things to do. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I am also going to be at Bay Area Science Festival. I would like to point out I'm doing my uh, show Quizotron, which is the world's greatest science-themed comedy panel show hosted by me. Uh, You can look it up. It's the, it's objectively speaking, it's the greatest. Absolutely. And last year, it was a huge hit at the Bay Area Science Festival. That was the first time you had done it, I think, in the Bay Area. Is that correct? Yes. And yeah, you filled out the Castro Theater to the rafters. It was a really good time. (laughs) Yeah. So we're doing it again with Seth Shostak and Veronica Belmont and a bunch of other cool people. And so that's October 23rd. Tickets at bayareascience.org. I think. I think so. I think that's exactly right. And also, so that's that's at the top of the festival. And then on the 27th, Nerd Night is going to Alcatraz, which I'm super excited I'm about. so excited. I haven't even been to Alcatraz yet. So I'm oh, excited man. that my first visit there is going to be when I feel like I own it. Well, it's going to be awesome. And I can't give you all the details just yet, but I'm super excited about it, too. So... Um, that's the Area Science Festival. Yeah. So, but there's other stuff. There's other stuff happening. Yeah. It's a big <laughs> week for science. <laughs> yeah. You you asked what's on my mind. So besides blatant self-promotion, uh, also on my mind is the fact that there's water on Mars, Andre. There's yeah. water on Mars. NASA just announced it. It's super exciting. And it's, mo- it's more than just like a droplet of water from what I understand, right? Yeah. Well... Okay, it is very little water, but it's exciting because normally when you talk about water on Mars, you're talking about water that used to be there centuries ago, or at best, you're talking about the possibility of frozen water. And this idea of water being on another planet is interesting because here on Earth, whenever we find water, generally we find life. And so with life as we know it, which isn't necessarily life everywhere, but it's the best we have to deal with at the moment, it certainly seems that you need water for it to happen. And so that's why we're so obsessed with finding water on other planets. And that's why this news is so exciting, because it's not frozen water. It's not even subterranean water. It's water on the surface of Mars that is moving. And actually, it's there. It's there now. I know. I'm just waiting for, you know, Seth or someone else to come out with. uh, Oh, and by the way, there's living things in that water. Yeah, it it's that's become much more of a possibility. It's still a long shot because what they found is that the water, you know, generally Mars is very, very cold. And so it's tough to find running liquid water on the surface. But it turns out that in the warmer seasons in Mars summer, it gets just warm enough for this water to come out. And that's because it's briny water. It's, you know, there are salt bits in it. And so, you know, here on Earth, we use salt to melt ice. Well, salt water has a lower freezing point than fresh water. And so that's why this water is able to flow on the surface of Mars. So, yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. And, you know, I... Uh, I was interested in that they found this water through uh, through their orbital program. You know, they they didn't find it. They they found it through um, through imaging the surface from orbit. They didn't find it through the rover. So I was interested. Well, why hasn't the rover gone and scooped up some water for us? If for no other reason than to bottle it and sell it at Whole Foods at a huge Uh, and a huge uptick. But uh, it turns out that legally, the Curiosity rover is not allowed to touch that water. It's only about 30 miles away from one of the deposits of water, but it's not allowed to go touch it because of a space treaty that we're in that says that we're not allowed to go touch water on another planet because we might contaminate it. 
Because if there is life in that water, then the rover might roll on over there and spread its disgusting earth germs all over it and kill anything that might be there. Or, you know, how do you know if the amoeba didn't come from the rover exactly. as opposed to from Mars? Yeah. yeah. And so our next generation of rovers needs to be designed with that in mind. How do we make this so that it's 100% sterile when it lands on the planet so we can be sure that anything it picks up was actually on the planet to begin with? And unfortunately, we can't do that for the next round because they've already been designed. Uh, so it's going to be probably upwards into the 2020s, 2030s before we actually have a sterile rover that we can launch into space to go and start poking at things on the ground. Wow. I'm going to be old then. I know. But I mean, maybe we'll be able to upload our brains into a computer at that point and we'll be living forever, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but be I <laughs> Because the Human Brain Project. Yeah. Well, yeah. The Brain Initiative, the US Project. Whatever. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I love a good segue, but I have an even better one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so last week we talked about uh, the potential impact that uh, hu the human search for uh, energy might be might have in Oklahoma, for example, where there seems to be an uptick in earthquakes. And one of the questions that I posed was, you know, one of the things that there that, that seems to be causing these earthquakes is, is you know, pumping wastewater from this you know, process back into the ground. And I was saying, well, can't we, you know, here we are in California in a major drought, like, can't we use that water for something good? And Kishore didn't have an answer for me, but one of our listeners did. So I want to give a shout out to Jeff Friedman, who emailed us about a really cool uh, award that was just awarded to a company that is creating a low cost salt water battery. Uh, so this, pr this particular company won a $500,000 award in order to produce a relatively cheap and environmentally eco-conscious battery that uses salt water and, of course, other commonly available materials to create energy. So here's a potential way that we can make use of this water, uh, you know, and, and solve our energy problems, you know, in the same, in the same, uh, with the same solution. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a super exciting idea. I, the skeptic in me uh, was immediately on alert when you mentioned this to me, because I know that I've talked about this in the in the past on, on Skeptic and on uh, my old podcast, the idea that there, there are these um, pseudo free energy machines out there every, maybe every five years or so, uh, a local news channel will find a garage Einstein who has discovered a way to make his car run using water, basically, by separating the hydrogen. And, and it's, for the most part, it's BS, it's, it's bad physics. And so when you first mentioned it, my, my immediate response was, Oh, that's that's crap. <laughs> yeah, and it's possible that it is. <laughs> um, but this particular uh, inventor, science material science professor at Carnegie Mellon, Jay Whitaker, was given the two 2015 Lemelson MIT Prize worth five hundred thousand dollars for inventing the battery. And uh, you know, his investors include people like Bill Gates and Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. So you know, so argument from authority is what yeah. you're saying. <laughs> No, I, I'm I'm sure that this is on the up and up, and it's just my knee-jerk reaction to hearing the idea of water, you know, being a bit of a battery. Look, it might not be, but it seems to me a better idea to try to develop such a battery than to pump water back into the ground, which might be causing earthquakes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if anybody's interested in the BS version of this, it's known as a water fuel cell. It was originally created by Stanley Allen Meyer. And uh, yeah, he claimed that it could power an automobile. And in an Ohio court, apparently they proved him to be a fraud. Well, this is called the aqueous hybrid ion battery, just to be just to be very clear. Right. Different things. Right. 
Okay. So speaking of uh, great discoveries, of course, this week were the announcements of the Nobel Prizes. So um, how did you do? Uh, <laughs> I was passed over once oh, again, I'm afraid. Again? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Every year. It's so disappointing. You're just up at 3 a.m. waiting for that call. I, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it hasn't come yet. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Um, but on the heels of the Sh- Martin Shkreli scandal, it was interesting to me that the Physiology and Medicine Prize went to three scientists who were studying infections, one of which is parasitic, just like toxoplasmosis, the infection that Daraprim treats. Um, then, of course, the Chemistry Prize went to the discovery of uh, sort of DNA repair uh, mechanics. And in physics, it went to the fact that neutrinos have mass. Who knew? So there we go. We'll talk uh, a little bit more detail if we can get one of those scientists on the show um, about exactly what their discoveries mean. I, I, I want you to talk to the toxoplasmosis person because that's the same one that people with cats have. Right? Uh, well, that's yes. Yeah, so, so that's not the parasitic infection that the Nobel Prize was <laughs> awarded for uh, curing. But that was I would the love to yes, see well, the so studies. studies. <laughs> yeah, we did talk about that. You should listen to oh, uh, the sorry. first episode. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, it has to do with cats and their ability to, um, you know, take over your brain. All right. With that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Kishore's interview with Brad Wojtek. This episode is sponsored by Sayer. Sayer, that's S-A-Y-E-R, is an app that lets you exercise that deep, inquisitive nature that we all have. With Sayer, you can ask questions of the world, share your opinions and predictions, and get immediate answers to, well, almost anything. You can debate, predict, and stay curious about the big questions that shape our times. Questions are at the heart of any interesting conversation, as we are firm believers here at Acquiring Minds. The better the question, the better the conversation. So the best ones make you stop and consider new possibilities, fire you up, and spark your imagination. Sayer takes that curiosity-fueled, questiony energy that drives all our best conversations and distills it down to a fun, easy-to-use app. You can go on Sayer, ask and answer questions, or just find out what everyone else thinks. Everything from who's going to win the election to is there alien life on Mars? Or when are we all going to have self-driving cars? Get Sayer and have your say on the questions that matter. Go to sayerapp.com slash minds. That's S-A-Y-E-R-A-P-P dot com slash minds and install the app. That's it. Remember, with Sayer, you ask and the world answers. Brad Wojtek, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Ah, thanks, Kish. Your lab website starts with this interesting... Uh, statement. Do not buy into the false belief that neuroscientists actually know what they're doing. I was hoping you could explain what you mean by that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the headlines that you see related to neuroscientific discoveries, the, there's that tendency to oversell. And this is actually, I mean, it's coming to a head right now in the neuroscientific community. There's the, uh, I don't know if you've heard this, uh, the uh, Big Brain Project, this billion dollar uh, billion euro, I should say, uh, project out of Switzerland. Blue brain, you mean? Blue brain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. And uh, basically, their goal was to create an infrastructure to model individual neurons down at like the synaptic cellular, like subcellular level, uh, and then try and digitally recreate a human brain to run experiments on, which is, or a rat brain, I think at this point was our goal. But uh, it's an interesting idea, but we're not really there yet as a, as a neuroscientific community. We just don't know enough about what we don't know. It's like one of those, you know, we don't even know what we don't know. Um, and this came to a head and it's, it's, it's created this huge, I mean, all of the scientific journals are talking about this, like the peer reviewed journals where it's, there's a group of neuroscientists who are basically saying, this is a waste of money. Uh, this is not going to work and I don't know what you did to do it. And it's, you're trying to oversell it and you're saying we're going to use this to create cures for diseases. And we seriously are not there yet. Um, last night there is a, uh, actually, uh, the chair of my department down at UC San Diego, Marta Kutis, who's a really big name in the cognitive neuroscience field. She won a, uh, essentially, um, like a lifetime achievement award. And in her talk, she had this great line, which is, uh, something along the lines of, uh, the brain is under no obligation to follow any of the rules that we try and impose upon it, on, upon how it works, right? Um, and that's, I mean, we, we seriously just, we, we don't know, we know a lot of brain regions that are correlated with different tasks, like brain area A can helps, you know, play an important role in emotional control and things like that. But that's so far from understanding how do, uh, how does this three kilogram or three pound, I should say, massive, essentially just goo in our heads create who we are, how we think, what we feel. 
So what do we actually know about the brain? I think the next statement on your down on your lab website says, I want potential lab students to think critically about what a neuron actually does. Yeah. And this is kind of a funny question to ask neuroscientists if you ask what a neuron does, right? It should be the most simple. I mean, the neurons are the building blocks of, of cognition, right? It's, it's the brain cells that communicate with each other to give rise to behavior. And you ask a neuroscientist, what does a neuron do? And you're going to get different answers from different neuroscientists, which should be a simple question, right? Um, uh, you can, some will say, oh, you, you neurons do information processing. Uh, neurons do communication. Uh, a more physiologically grounded person would say neurons uh, decide whether or not to set an action potential uh, based upon the sum of its uh, synaptic inputs. Um, uh, but all of those are have very different meanings. Like fundamentally, if you like information processing versus memory storage versus those are all fundamentally different things, right? And so uh, it's kind of a surprising thing that we don't even really have a consensus on what a neuron does, or even if neurons are the actual. Uh, sole important unit of brain functioning. So, <laughs> is this di- <laughs> is this different from other aspects of biology? I think there's arguments like this happening in uh, in different other cellular structures. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, I don't think it's a un- necessarily unique thing to neuroscience, but um, uh, there, there's a there's a, a story from my PhD advisor Bob Knight. He likes to sort of tell every now and then, which is uh, when he started out in neuroscience in the 1970s. Um, he had this this older aunt uh, who would ask him, you know, Bobby. He says, uh, you know, what do we really know? How much do we know about the brain? And he says, well, we know I would say about one percent. And then he tells a story how you know, 40 years later, <clears throat> he's been in the field forever. He says, Bobby, you've been doing this for so long, and you, you know, there seem to be so many great discoveries. What do we know about the brain? He says, well, Auntie, we've doubled what we know. We know 2%, right? And I really, I don't think that's actually far off. I don't think it's an exaggeration, right? We, we've, we've, we make such incrementally small steps. And I don't think people have an appreciation for how big of a field neuroscience is and how many people are working on this problem. Uh, the annual Society for Neuroscience Conference has 35,000 or so attendees from around the world. These are PhD neuroscientists. And I don't know if you've ever been to a, a like, you know, high school uh, science fair, you've got the posters, but you know, that's, that's kind of what it's like, right? Like everybody's presenting their research on posters, thousands of them lined up. And, uh, you know, if you assume that the average scientist works 40 hours a week, which is laughable, I think it's something like 50 or 60 hours a week. Uh, but if you assume they're working 40 hours a week, you've got 30,000 people working 40 hours a week per year. Um, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of person hours every year going into this endeavor. And, uh, I think it's something like 30,000 peer-reviewed publications, um, 10 to 30,000, I forget the number, 10,000 to 30,000 per month or something like that of peer-reviewed scientific publications coming out. And, you know, you'd think we'd have, you'd think we'd have it figured out by now, but it's just, it's so massive of a problem. At least we're at 2%. So if we only use 10% of our brain, that is a joke. That is a joke to our listeners. (laughs) So when it comes to this idea of if we're at this infancy stage with neuroscience and it's so big, how do you prioritize what to study when the expectation from external groups, whether it be the broad general public or policymakers or funders, is that you deliver results in a short-term time frame? That's a, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I would say it comes down to what do we as a society want, <laughs> which is a much bigger question in some way, right? But um, you know, you could say, is it worth funding science when we don't know, is it worth funding neuroscience or science in general when you don't know that much, right? We spend, uh, the NIH spends, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year. Um, but, uh, on, on the flip side, okay, maybe most scientific publications that come out, most research isn't groundbreaking, right? It's this incremental stuff, but, uh, you never know what result is going to lead to a huge breakthrough. I mean, something as trivial as you know penicillin accidentally, accidentally being discovered uh, by looking at mold, or to give a neuroscientific modern example, uh, people studying uh, a certain kind of algae and why how they phosphoresce, like how do they glow at night in the ocean, that ended up leading to the modern breakthrough of optogenetics, which is our ability to use these light expressing cells or, or I should say proteins uh, and express them in neurons to turn neurons on and off using lasers, which is, I mean, it's going to be a Nobel prize in the next 10 years, no doubt. Uh, It's been a huge breakthrough in understanding how how the brain functions. Um, And so I think as a society, are we willing to fund a lot of incremental work 
at the you know the hope of these major breakthroughs and, and you know you don't you can't get the major breakthroughs unless you have the opportunity unless you create a culture or a society that provides an opportunity for those breakthroughs to occur are there efficiencies though that need to be developed within the system at large or is it working pretty well right now I, I know you yourself have worked on projects uh, to increase the efficiency of of finding certain papers, the brain scanner project that right. you and your wife worked on. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, and every system can be optimized, I think. Uh, and there there is a there is a group of us neuroscientists and scientists who are working on this idea of uh, information integration and aggregation, right? So I said there's tens of thousands of peer-reviewed publications happening every month, uh, and those are largely independent. These are static PDF documents; they don't really talk to each other. It's really hard to aggregate that information. Uh, and so there are certainly groups of us. Even at UC San Diego, there's the uh, there's the NIF, which is run by Marianne Martone, which is Neural Information Framework. I hope I got that right. Sorry, Marianne, if I got it wrong. Um, and that's a major endeavor to try and integrate all of this information. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that you, you, you know, essentially uh, because there's, there's so many research findings coming out so fast, certainly no one person can read all of those papers and aggregate that information. So now we're getting into this idea of like meta science where you have to, you have so much scientific research happening and so many findings that you need some way of aggregating that information algorithmically for you to sort of, you know, so that we can do the human creative process and, and try and come up with new ideas. And that's incredibly difficult. So I've asked you a lot of tough questions about, about neuroscience funding and neuroscience in general. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what you're actually studying. So I'm actually interested in the role that neural oscillations play in uh, coordinating information transfer between brain regions. To unpack that, it turns out that uh, the, your, your neurons in your brain, the brain cells, uh, oscillate. Um, uh, they don't just, they're not like, tick, 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 right? Like that's, that's a communication signal, right? They, they sort of have a pattern, a rhythmicity to them. Uh, and uh, we don't know where that rhythmicity necessarily comes from. So I sort of alluded to earlier uh, about what we don't know. So we have about 86 billion or so neurons in our brains or central nervous system. But it turns out there's at least as many, if not up to 10 times as many, uh, so up to 860 billion, uh, what are called glial cells, which are, uh, it's literally Latin for glue uh, because they were just thought to be the thing, the scaffolding that holds all the neurons together, provides sort of a, a structure to the brain. And they weren't really thought to play any role in, in uh actual functional role. So they don't really do anything in terms of neural communication or anything like that. But now it turns out people are starting to argue and they've actually been arguing for decades, but it's been a minority. It's becoming a majority of you now because uh, the evidence is pretty, pretty strong that these glue cells, uh, which outnumber neurons probably, uh, do play a functional role. Um, they do send, some of them uh, send action potentials. Uh, they form synapses with neurons. They, they form electrical coupling to neurons. They uh, propagate uh, calcium waves. So calcium is a charged ion in the brain that plays a very important role in neural signaling. Uh, and they, they sort of, uh, it, it's just, it's wild. And uh, one side effect of, of this system is uh, that you get these uh, oscillating electric fields in the brain. Uh, and some of these oscillations are really slow, like one hertz, so one time per second, which is relatively slow, up to maybe like 100 hertz or so. Um, and it turns out that these uh, oscillations in the brain's electrical activity bias the probability of neurons firing. So if the oscillation is at the peak, so if you think of a sine wave or even an ocean wave, right? If you're at the, 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 the peak of that ocean wave at the crest, uh, then maybe a neuron in that brain region will be more likely to fire. And if you're at the trough, it's less likely to fire. Um, and we think that this is actually, uh, some people use the phrase multiplexing, uh, which is the idea that uh, you can have different frequencies overlapping and different neurons are tuned to different frequencies. And so they can listen in. And this is one way possibly that the brain can do massive parallel uh, coordination of information. 
Um, but even more wild is evidence that uh, the ongoing fluctuations in this brain activity actually bias your perception. So if I flash a little light, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been to, you're wearing glasses, so you've been to the optometrist. Uh, one of the things that they they test uh, when you get your eyes checked out usually is uh, you put your eye you put your eyes into this uh, like viewfinder looking thing, and the screen is gray, and you have a button in your hand, and every time you see a little squiggle in the periphery of your vision, you have to touch that button. Have you done that? Yes, I've yeah. done it. Yeah. Um, and so in a test pretty much just like that, it turns out that. Um, whether or not the brain oscillation in the visual part of your brain at the back of your head is at the peak or the trough, when that stimulus happens to appear, you are more or less likely to notice it. Um, so this ongoing fluctuation of brain activity actually biases your perception. There's a really clever study that a group did uh, um, recently using uh, what's called the flickering wheel illusion. So it looks like a, a sort of a black and white checkerboard, but a circle version of it. And uh, if you look at the uh, center of that thing out of the side of revision. So you have to sort of like focus away from it, but uh, it looks like it's sort of flickering. And they gave people uh, a little dial and a strobe light, and you just turned the dial uh, to change the speed that the strobe was flashing until it matched what it looked like the flashing rate was of this, uh, this illusion. And it turns out that more or less perfectly predicts the, uh, your specific visual cortical oscillation rate. And is that very, very person to person? Or is it pretty standard across? So that's one project we're doing is it does actually vary person to person and identifying that variability is kind of hard. And so one thing that the lab has recently done is we created this, it's a machine learning algorithm to identify individual differences in this variability. Because what we want to do and what we're actually already doing is if this ongoing brain activity, uh, and I'm talking about like the, the time between a peak and a trough where you're more or less likely to notice it is something like uh, maybe... 40 to 60 milliseconds so oh, 40 to 60 thousandth of a second um and but now that we have this algorithm to sort of uh, tag and individually fingerprint your your oscillatory frequency uh, uh we actually are doing this project where we selectively given that information we can only present stimuli either at the optimal or non-optimal uh, point so like flash a light that you're supposed to detect it's really hard to see um and you have to you have to say did you see a color change or not right so very simple um, and it turns out we can manipulate in, looks like we have preliminary data. Uh, this isn't peer reviewed, so caveat emptor. Uh, uh, but, uh, it looks like we can, uh, change your perceptual learning rates a little bit. Uh, so if we only present things during optimal or non-optimal times of your brain's current ongoing state, we can, we can modify learning. Are there folks with neurodegenerative diseases or conditions that this, uh, oscillation, uh, frequency, uh, is different is wildly different or is totally disrupted yeah so i have it's actually like a supplemental figure in a paper i published as a phd student which showed that people with um, frontal lobe lesions so they had a stroke that damaged the neurons in the front part of the brain which is really important for cognition and memory and attention we showed that uh, they actually do show changes in the oscillatory uh, properties in the visual cortex uh, and we, we we argue that this is a loss of to use the neuroscientific uh, uh, jargon, top-down uh, processing, which is basically the frontal cortex communicates with the visual cortex, which is what allows us to guide our attention. Um, and the loss of that because of the stroke has has changed some of these properties. So ultimately our goal is to use this information uh, to, well, first try and ground really complicated cognitive phenomena, like being able to pay attention to stuff in basic neurophysiology, like what, what do we know about how neurons work? But then build that up and say, okay, given what we've discovered, what does this then mean for neurological or psychiatric disorders? And so there must be open questions about how aging affects this, I imagine. Uh, what other open questions are you interested in pursuing long-term or up? Well, so I can just talk about the current project. So aging is actually one, which is... Uh, uh, a lot of cognitive functions uh, decline on average with age, um, and we don't really know why. And one, one, one hypothesis is what's called the neural noise hypothesis, which is neurons just get noisier. They don't work as efficiently. You know, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the paper that we have, which is uh, under review, so still not quite out yet, but uh, we, we actually have done a computational model. So we simulated... Uh, neural networks communicating in this uh, oscillation regime that we, we we sort of talk about. And then we, we add noise to that communicating system. And we say, okay, this is what the model then would predict if you add noise to it. What does it look like in the human brain? Uh, and we find that um, uh, without going into all of the fine details, that basically uh, 
uh, as neuron, as the probability of a neuron sending this action potential decouples from these oscillations, the communication becomes less efficient. And that's kind of what we see in aging. Um, and uh, we actually have a, a, a we were invited uh, to write a theory paper, um, my PhD advisor and I, basically encapsulating, well, what does this mean? If, if, if this communication scheme that we're arguing for is correct, then what are the implications of that? Like, you know, what are the first order, second order, like as you go down? And so in this theory paper, we basically say, if this is correct, which it almost certainly is not because neuroscientific theories are never right, but there might be a grain of truth to it. Um, if it's correct, then it has implications for uh, what do we understand about, uh, you know, communication in schizophrenia or, or autism or uh, depression or things like that. And so, um, we are, we are collaborating with, uh, neurosurgeons actually who do, uh, one project is they do deep brain stimulation. Uh, so they implant an electrode into a very specific part of the brain in patients with Parkinson's disease, uh, which manifests like movement tremors and, and slow movements and things like that. And you see, you see this happen. Uh, the patient has trouble moving. They, they, they have this tremor. And as soon as they turn on this, this, uh, stimulator that they've implanted in this part of the brain, Suddenly, you know, uh, at least not all of them, but a vast majority of them can just, they walk, uh, the tremors go away. Um, and this is, a, this, this, uh, surgery is also done in depression, uh, in cases of severe depression, uh, that people aren't responding to drug or, 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 or therapy. Um, they can put a stimulator in a very specific part of the brain. And, uh, uh Helen Mayberg is, is, uh, uh, one of the doctors who really pioneered this. And she says that, you know, they turn this stimulator on and, and the patients who it works for, it's like, I feel like a cloud has been lifted, like it just instantaneously almost. Um, and we don't really know why it works, like what's happening. And so our theory sort of makes some predictions about why that might work. Well, it's like reminiscent of awakenings when they were using dopamine in those early projects and they had no idea of why it was actually working. Right. So we've been doing this, this treatment for a number of years now. That deep brain stimulation has been around for over a decade, oh, yeah. Yeah. but we still have no idea why it works. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have plenty of, of sort of, uh, we have, I, w I would say high level theories, right? Yeah. They're like, okay, well, you know, if we, if we abstract out, what does a neuron do? A neuron sends action potentials and, you know, they communicate like we have sort of high level theories like that, but not a really strong physiologically grounded, like, okay, what is actually happening in the circuitry, uh, that permits this, this, uh, recovery. Um, and so one project we're doing is well, we're analyzing these data. So, uh, you know, actual data directly recorded from the brains of the patients that have undergone these surgeries. Um, but we're also working with a group of people at UCSD who are doing uh, electroconvulsive therapy. So this is what used to be called, <laughs> used to be called electroshock therapy has a really bad rap. Uh, I had a negative view of it as a neuroscientist cause I didn't know. Um, but it turns out it's still kind of considered the gold standard treatment for treatment resistive depression. So people who, again, aren't responding to, uh, drugs or therapy, essentially they're going to be committing suicide. That's it. Like they're, they're just, that's how severe the depression is. And, uh, something like 80% of the people who undergo this electroconvulsive therapy, uh, improve. Um, and what is done, uh, and I, I, again, I didn't know this, but, uh, the patient is put under general anesthetic, so they're totally knocked out. Um, and this is only for a few minutes that they're they're anesthetized completely um, and unconscious. And uh, then a current is passed through their brain, uh, and uh, that gives them a seizure. And uh, only for about 30 to 60 seconds. Uh, and then they're woken back up, um, and they undergo this treatment for uh, a week or two. They, they undergo a couple of sessions, and their depression is dramatically improved. And nobody has any idea why this works. And again, sort of uh, going back to, uh, I, I sort of alluded to this neural noise idea in aging. Um, basically, the argument is that there's sort of this fine interplay, like a dance between uh, this oscillatory harmony between brain regions and uh, uh, neural noise. Like noise is actually an important part of uh, processing, it turns out, in the brain. And if there's too much noise or too little noise, that can be bad. If there's too much synchrony between uh, these brain oscillations are too little, that can be bad. And so the theory that we're putting forth sort of brings those two concepts together 
And uh, so we think that one idea is that uh, this electroconvulsive therapy is literally just adding electrical noise into the brain. It's just adding a ton of noise and that resets the networks. I'm using really coarse metaphorical terminology here, but that's basically the gist of of the hypothesis. And now we're testing, of course, to see if that's even remotely true. So maybe a decade down the road, you're going to be a brain composer of some sort. (laughs) Delivering different <laughs> potentials to sort of tweak the harmonies inside of the, of the brain. I, the one word that I keep hearing come up and just being alluded to, almost all of your analogies and metaphors go towards computation mm-hmm. and data. And I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into this marriage that exists now between neuroscience and very deep data analysis. It seems like every neuroscientist we come across alludes to it, but doesn't really give us uh, an opinion on how much data is being generated and how they're dealing with the swath of it. Well, we're dealing with it poorly. <laughs> uh, we have uh, just an incredible amount of, of data that we're being recorded. So people who do uh, what we call single unit recording. So they stick an electrode in an animal's brain uh, and they can record the electrical activity of one neuron. Actually, they do a couple hundred at a time now. Um, but mind you, the most we can do is a couple hundred at a time when we've got 86 billion, right, in the human brain at least. Um, and they record uh, electrical activity, so they have to digitize that, right? And uh, they usually digitize it at a rate of 30-something thousand samples per second. So they take an electrical measurement 30,000 times per second. Uh, and each one of those requires 16 to 32 bits of information each time point to in- encode. And, you know, they do that for hours. So you're talking about gigabytes of data um, just from one session. And in order to say anything about, you know, anything, you need tons and tons of data. You need lots of samples. You need, uh, you know, in theory, many animals because, you know, different animals are raised in different scenarios and things like that. Um and that's just from one experiment, from one lab, from you know, and there's tens of thousands. And and uh, right now the data data management is poor. So usually what happens is, uh, you know, some graduate student or postdoctoral researcher does the actual experiment, collects all the data, maybe writes a couple of papers, and that sits on a hard drive in a drawer somewhere after they leave. And then you know who knows what happens to it. So there is there is an effort to try and organize all of these data into some central repository. But then of course the question is who pays for that repository. Uh, what kinds of information needs to also be included with that data. You can't just do raw data. You have to say, what kind of animal was it? When was it recorded? Where was it recorded? What kind of thing was the animal doing? Was there any noise in the background, right? And so how much other information do you need to include? Uh, and so right now there's, it's, it's nobody knows. So you're just alluding to infrastructure and process. Is there also a limiting factor in our computational power currently as well to uh, regarding how much data is being collected? Or I wonder how much of this is about training. I mean, neuroscientists have traditionally come from strong biology backgrounds. And I imagine they're not, uh, they haven't historically been trained in computational methodologies uh, up until sort of modern times. Yeah, so in neuroscience, you have, uh, you know, the different subfields, right? So you have either the people that got trained in cell biology, uh, and they're doing, you know, ion channel work and, and like neurochemistry and things like that. Or you have people that come from a psychology background doing, you know, human cognition research and brain imaging. Um, and yeah, traditionally, we don't get a lot of statistical or computational training. Um, and lots of universities are scrambling to change that, right? Because it's become very clear, the writing is on the wall, that you need really solid training uh, just because uh the reality is you're not going to you're, you're not going to uncover the mysteries of the mind by studying 20 undergraduates from UC San Diego about how their brains respond to, you know, some cognitive task, right? Because there's just so much cultural variability and environmental variability and individual differences and genetic differences and all of this stuff. Um, and so yes, our computational capacity does limit the kinds of questions I think that we ask. Uh, and we don't even, I, I think most people aren't even aware of that, right? Like if we had more data and if we had more computational capacity, then we could do different kinds of analyses. And that's one thing that we try and do in the lab is, is you know, uh, San Diego luckily has a San Diego supercomputing center. Um, and so they have a really strong sort of history of computation at San Diego. Uh, and that's been really great because we can, we can leverage that. Um, but I mean, but even then I, I'm, I'm teaching a class to uh, neuroscientists and cognitive scientists, undergraduates, which is, I start tomorrow, it was the first day of class, which is introduction to computation. And that just starts off from the very simple, like, what is a terminal, 
Let's write a shell script. Um, what do you, you know, even, and then, you know, more abstractly, what is computation? Why does it matter in terms of understanding the brain and cognition? Um, uh, but yeah, so universities are, are doing a lot uh, to try and address this. As you see, you know, fields like suddenly you've got data science programs popping up at universities uh, and, and neuroscience programs are, are hiring computational and data science people because we don't know what kinds of questions we can't ask yet. So there's a great deal of complexity that we've talked about, whether it be from basic understanding of how neurons and glial cells work together to... Uh, how much data is being generated. And we're still only, according to your advisor, at 2%. Right. Uh, so I'm I'm really wondering how this is communicated to broad segments of the general public. Uh, my impression of how neuroscience is communicated is often through just popular science books. Like somebody will write a book on, you know, the human, human brain or like the male brain versus the female right. brain. Uh, and we've had problems with that, uh, most notably probably Jonah Lair, who actually plagiarize some of his material in his books. Yeah. And I'm curious what your opinion in, is on how we're communicating the complexity of neuroscience um, to these broad publics and, and how we can do a better job of that. I guess my, my fundamental concern is uh, the setting up of expectations that occurs. So, uh, you know, if you are not a scientist and you, you constantly are seeing these headlines about, oh, we figured out there was one recently it was like, for the first time, we now understand the differences in the autistic brain or something like that, right? Uh, and everybody who's an autism researcher was like, what? We've been doing this kind of thing for 15, 20 years, right? Um, and those set up expectations in the public that, oh, we are on the cusp of solving the mystery of autism or schizophrenia or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, you know? And uh, almost everyone knows someone, a family member or friend who is afflicted by one of these disorders, right? Be it depression or anxiety to, uh, you know, autism and all of these things, right? And uh, that sets up an expectation in the public's mind that we are on the cusp. And when we as neuroscientists don't deliver uh, on those promises, then we lose credibility. And that's that's a horrible thing, right? Because once you lose that credibility, then then the funding dries up and that prohibits us from actually then being able to make those discoveries as easily. Um, and it, it's a, it's a, it's a very negative cycle. I think on the, like on the micro scale at the individual researcher level, it's a very virtuous cycle, right? If you get that press, then you get more funding, right? Because you get more attention. So on the individual researcher level, those people that are getting those press that helps them. But as a field, as a whole, I think it's hurting us. Uh, and the problem is the incentives then. Right. The incentive is for researchers to to make these maybe only slightly exaggerated claims in order to try and get more money and uh, for their research uh, because they really they they I know from talking to everybody right like they really do feel like okay if we had more money if our lab had more money we 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 really will come closer to solving this issue right so everybody's goals are positively oriented but everybody's goals being positively oriented ended up being detrimental to the field. That's a very weird incentive structure. And so I really don't know what the solution is, but um, I think one solution is just being more honest in the communication. And so uh, every paper that I publish, I, I try and write a, a blog post, which is, okay, here's why I think it's interesting or cool, right? Like, and, and here are all of the issues with it, right? So every paper is, you know, jargon laden and really just obtuse and, and it's opaque to the public. They're not going to really understand it unless they have a pretty heavy scientific training. But if you can sort of distill it down and say, okay, here's just, you know, very simple. Why does this matter? Uh, and what can't it do or what doesn't it say? What are its limitations? Um, I think that's really important. And there's actually a really great endeavor. Again, uh, I, uh, I have a huge amount of respect for my PhD advisor, but he's actually been working with um, uh, two journal publication or publishers. One is called the Frontiers uh, Journal Publishing and the other one is Nature Publishing Group. Uh, and they have a uh, journal called uh, um, uh, Frontiers uh, frontiers for kids or kids. Uh, I should really check this out, but that is actually, uh, children between the ages of, I think the youngest they have is like a five-year-old all the way up to, of course, like, uh, teenagers. Um, and they write a review of a paper. Like they try and summarize a paper and, uh, th the people who wrote the paper, uh, can help explain it, but they have no control over what they write. And, uh, it actually, what they end up writing, the synopsis that the the uh, scientists write, undergoes child peer review, 
nice. and editing. And it's great. It, you know, you read these things and it's, it's way more clear than any of us write it. <laughs> uh, and it's a fantastic resource. And so they're really pushing for right now. It's just uh, for neuroscience, but they're, uh, I think I can talk about it. He said that they're either just launch or launching to have it more broad. So they're doing geosciences and, uh, you know, more broad health and I think astronomy and, you know, they're, they're really taking it across all the different sciences and having kids help communicate complex ideas. I like the idea of kids say the darndest things about neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I wonder what kind of nonsense will come out of that. But the one thing that, I'm, I, that sticks in my mind is a lot of these conversations that we talk about they, through popular books, uh, through the communications channels that you're talking about, still reach a fairly, um, uh, pardon my course language, like privileged audience. Oh, yeah. And uh, most of my experience in neuroscience has been with people that come from like a certain background. Uh, that uh, historically have have money. The audience they're talking to has has disposable income and time to consider this. How do we actually broaden, or, or do you give thought to how we broaden participation so that it's more ref it reaches an audience that is may not be engaged in this topic already? Uh, yeah. So I, I don't come from a privileged background, as you know, uh, and this is something that I think about a lot. I'm actually the diversity representative for my department, uh, and I, I, I diversity being broadly construed, right, uh, from racial diversity and, and ethnic diversity to socioeconomic diversity, and you know, I do a lot of public speaking, but um, I try and also do a lot. But you know, like at schools, I try and go to elementary schools and, and junior high and high schools, uh, not just in the affluent neighborhoods where you know the parents. Uh, are the people that see me at an event and they ask me to go because they have enough money to go to events that, that are scientifically oriented in the evening, right? Um, and so I've done a lot of attempts to try and outreach to to lower SES schools. And, you know, it's kids everywhere are curious, right? Like, and you can go to the lowest of SES schools and, uh, you know, just wow them, right? Like they are so excited about uh, science, but they may not have as many uh, uh, mentors, to get them interested in the first place. And there's a great statistic, which is at least in the human uh, psychology and neuroscience research, 96% uh, of the people that are studied, like if you read a paper about some breakthrough, the, the people that were studied, the brains that were scanned come from what are, what are called WEIRD, uh, which is an acronym for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democracy Backgrounds. So essentially European and Americans uh, Western European and Americans, 96%. Uh, and so there's a whole group of people who are like, does that really represent human population at large, right? Like does somebody who grew up in a city uh, with, you know, a different environment and a level of education and, you know, a certain kind of, uh, you know, high level of nutrition, does their brain functioning really represent the average brain uh, or all brains? Uh, and of course the answer is no, when you put it like that. And so there, there is this push of like, you know, we need to be more diverse, even in the people that we're studying in the, the people that we, we help recruit. And if there are differences, right, let's say there are neural differences between, uh, you know, American kids that grew up in, in, in San Francisco and how they process visual information, let's say, or somebody who grew up in, you know, I don't know, like a, you know, uh, like the, the steps of Mongolia or something, right? Um, we know that environment plays a role in, in neural development. Uh, and there's a great study out of, out of Berkeley by Xiao uh, and Bao is the, the lead researcher's name. Uh, he does work in rats showing that if you raise rats in an environment where you play certain frequencies of sound, like high pitched over and over and over again, the area of their brain that responds to high pitches is overdeveloped. Like, you know, the brain sort of develops to be able to detect subtle differences in those high pitches. Um, same thing with the visual system. If you grow up in, in a world where, you know, the color green is prominent, then, you know, maybe there's an overrepresentation of the way because you need to be able to differentiate between subtle. And so if you grow up in a city where you have lots of straight lines and buildings and sounds of cars, maybe that does affect neural development versus somebody that grows up in a more like organic, less, you know, fewer straight lines kind of environment of the fields, right? Or steps of Mongolia, for example. Um, and so, we, but that's, we don't know. Uh, we don't have any evidence because nobody does it because, you know, you're not going to take an fMRI scanner and bring it out into the steps of Mongolia. So this is a really important kind of question that we need to figure out how to address. 
I think on that note that everybody has a brain and every brain needs to be studied. I think we'll stop there. Brad Wojtek, thanks for joining thanks, us on Accord. Always a pleasure. <laughs> so I have to say right off the bat um, that I didn't do the interview with Brad Wojtek in part because I'm a neuroscientist and sometimes it's a little bit too close to home. It's, it's, it's hard for me to resist jumping into the jargon and just, you know, creating a, a show that just might not be of interest to our listeners because we'll get too bogged down with the details. And so um, I just can't help it. But there was one thing that Brad said at the top of the show, which we know is probably not correct. So he did mention that we have about 86 billion neurons and then he made a claim and he did couch it in possibles and maybes that uh, we might have glial cells that outnumber our neurons 10 to 1. And the truth is, is that we don't. Um, So we now know that the actual ratio between glial cells and neurons is closer to 1 to 1. We might have slightly more glial cells than neurons, but certainly not the 10 to 1 ratio that gets tossed around willy-nilly that is not based on any actual evidence. Um, But the truth is that we still don't understand what these glial cells do, and it's entirely possible that they are playing a major role in cognition, not just in supporting neurons and their functions. So he's absolutely right about that. Okay. I... (laughs) I just love that you you guys have a podcast where you can fact check as you go with your own uh, in-house neuroscientist. That's this must save you guys a lot of angry emails later. Well, yeah, you know, so I have a I have a I have deep knowledge of a very narrow slice of science, uh, but this this is one of them. But you know, I did I did find it really interesting when Brad was talking about not only you know sort of how little do we know. So he quoted his uh, former advisor Bob Knight at saying. At the beginning of his career, his grandma asked him, you know, how much do we know about the brain? And he said, oh, we know about 1%. And then 40 years later, he said, you know, we know about 2%. <laughs> but we've doubled our knowledge. Um, well, I mean, the the brain is such, it's such a complex structure that to me, the idea of even understanding 2% of what's going on in our brains is amazing. And I was just talking about this with a friend, the idea that, you know, when it comes to uh, even something as hands-on as um, medicine that affects your brain, so psychological meds, things that help you, you know, stay on balance. It's a lot of it is such a guessing game where it's we'll take this and see what happens, and then come back and we'll talk. And it's incredible to me that I feel like we're in this weird medieval almost stage <laughs> where uh, there's so much we don't know and so much left to discover, which is actually really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I do hope we're beyond the medieval stage. And I think that, you know, sometimes when I when I hear about why historically did certain treatments persist, even though the evidence didn't really quite, um, you know, show that they were effective. And, you know, a lot of this comes back down to confirmation bias, even in medicine, you know, a doctor treats a patient, treats 10 patients, one of them gets better, they remember the fact that their one patient got better, it might have just been that time passed, and that patient would have gotten better anyway. Um, But instead, you know, they attribute their success to the treatment. and, And that's, you know, that's where a lot of medicine went wrong for a long time. And now I feel like we are getting much better at understanding our own biases and then designing scientific experiments uh, to look at those. But, you know, as Brad mentions, there are tens of thousands of articles that are published every month. And there are so many people working on this problem. And we need a lot of people to work on this problem. But we also need an organizational system that will help us sort of um, really pick out sort of the bigger ideas um, that we're looking at. And and so hopefully things like the U.S. Brain Initiative, which you know, frankly, I think is, is, is just the first step in sort of organizing these large scale projects of understanding the brain. I don't think we're going to be anywhere near where we think we are. The, the U.S. Brain Initiative is not going to tell us exactly how the brain works. We're not going to be able to simulate it with this one project, but it'll get us closer to designing a way of looking at and testing neuroscientific hypotheses um, that ultimately will get us closer to what, where we want to be. Yeah, I mean, at the at the same time that I I do think that creating the idea of of creating a brain in ten years is so incredibly ridiculous considering what we currently know. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of ridiculousness behind the SpaceX program. The idea of we're going to get private individuals to launch us into space. I think that's it's a crazy idea, but there's something about 
a really overly ambitious and expensive project that may very well fall on its butt. That is what humans need to push forward and to keep our eyes on the prize in a way and actually make realistic uh, jumps forward in our knowledge. Yeah, and I think my hope is that ultimately this will get people excited in the idea of funding science. And sure, you know, a billion dollars even sounds like a lot of money, but it's not enough money to get us where we need to be. But maybe if you fund a couple of big projects, but then, you know, a lot of the other money that, you know, that gets generated by people thinking that they need to invest in science, that's where the real work's going to happen, right? It's going to happen, I think, in the grunt work, um, a lot of it. And anyway, at least, at least, hopefully that will generate more funding for neuroscience, which I think would be great. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you, Rebecca, for joining us. Thank you. And our listeners uh, for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on Patreon, particularly Sean Johnson, Nick Cadillac, and Herring Chang. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook on slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like, like, for example, the saltwater battery. Thanks, Jeff, to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. Kishore Hari will be back next week. Thanks a lot. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.